Welcome to Upfront About Breast Cancer, what you don't know until you do, with Dr. Charlotte Topman. This is Episode 7 of our 10-part series. For the best listening experience, we recommend you listen in order from Episode 1 through to 10. BCNA's Helpline provides a free, confidential phone and email service for people diagnosed with breast cancer. BCNA's experienced team will help with your questions and concerns and provide relevant resources and services. Call 1800 500 258 or email contact at bcna.org.au. Welcome to Upfront About Breast Cancer, what you don't know until you do, with Dr. Charlotte Totman, brought to you by the Breast Cancer Network Australia. Welcome back to the podcast, Upfront About Breast Cancer, what you don't know until you do, with clinical psychologist, Dr. Charlotte Totman. In the last episode, Charlotte, who also has a lived experience of breast cancer, talked about post-treatment adjustment, a topic not often talked about, let alone addressed. Today, it's about finding the way forward rather than trying to find the way back to your old self. A reminder that this episode of Upfront about breast cancer is unscripted. Some of the topics discussed are not intended to replace medical advice, nor represent the full spectrum of experience or clinical options. So please exercise self-care when listening, as the content may be triggering or upsetting for some. Welcome back, Charlotte. Hi, Kelly. And the next version of you. So many people crave getting back to their old life, to their old self, and it would seem that that's a little futile. Yeah, and not only do they crave it, but they, um, they're sort of often impatient for it, so that it's not just that they want it, but they kind of want it straight away, almost as the last chemo session or the last radiation treatment finishes. It's kind of like, okay, right, next, next week I'm going to be back. And that is something that they often come to realise is not possible and that can set up lots of frustration, feelings of disappointment and feeling like a failure. This is often when I get referrals, when people are really struggling in that post-treatment phase. Their other medical appointments have kind of largely resolved instead of opening a diary and finding every single day covered with multiple medical appointments. They've got gaps and time to think and they're starting to realise that actually things aren't perhaps going to be the way that they were and they're not often happy about that. Okay, so even yourself possibly thought that you'd swing back into your old life too. Yeah, well, I mean, as we were discussing in the last episode, I think, you know, on reflection, I sort of hid it in my work. I went back too soon, I did too much and it took a big psychological crisis, a big crash um, several months later for me to kind of really come to grips with the fact that I couldn't go back and in fact what I was doing was you know everything that I see so many of my clients struggle with and I was really resisting the fact that I was not the same and not only was I not the same but I wasn't ever going to be the same and I tell you when I when I have those discussions with clients (laughs) when I have that discussion with myself um, back then there is a really often a really strong resistance that idea that um, something else has wrought such a massive change on our life, unexpected and uninvited, is so unacceptable. And we want to reclaim because we are so pissed off at the fact that that's happened. 
Okay. So as I said in my intro, quite often it's trying to get back to the way life was, to the way you were, to the way everything was. And even when we have those revelations of I'm going to be a better eater, a better this, a better that, you know, a bit of a perspective change. Mm. Is it just a case of time or is it that you have to move on to the next version of you? I really believe, and and certainly the evidence supports the fact that you don't ever go back to being the same person. And the reason for that is both on the physical front and the psychological front. If you think about the physical changes, and I know we touched on this last episode, but it bears repeating, the physical changes that are imposed upon you because of cancer treatment you know, are many. They can be the loss of tissue, they can be scars, they can be weight changes, they can be things like nail and hair and skin changes. So they are substantial and they are long-lasting. And the psychological changes are also large and they don't just resolve. And, for example, I know I will always be fearful of the cancer returning. So, so I didn't have that before diagnosis. So that means that psychologically I am now a different person. I worry about my body image. I worried about it a little bit before diagnosis. I worry about it a lot more now. That sort of stuff is a change. And even if you work on those things and you reconcile and you come to grips with them, you're still different than you were before. And as with most things in psychology, once you kind of become more aware and you do confront the things that are making you feel uncomfortable, you actually do better. And In this case, confronting them sounds a bit uncomfortable, but it's kind of embracing the fact that, okay, there is a next version of me. I quite often use the analogy of a book. And language in this space is quite important. And I know you and I have discussed, you know, the new normal, which is often used around post-treatment adjustment and is so overused at the moment in the COVID space. And we're all sick to death of it, which is one of the reasons that we haven't used that sort of language here. And language is important because it reflects our thoughts. You can call it what you like, the next version of you, the new normal, Charlotte 2.0, but it is about embracing, acknowledging, and and like I talked about last time, it's that adjustment process of coming to grips with the fact that this thing that was bigger than you has happened and you can't turn back time. And once you can get to that place and you can actually kind of go, well, do you know what? This next chapter of my of my story, my life, it doesn't have to be better or worse. It doesn't have to be measured against what my life was before. It can just be the next part of my life. And a lot of people fall into the trap of thinking that that this will somehow be a lesser version of them, that this will be somehow substandard and um, compromised. And, and I get why that would be, because, of course, coming through cancer, like that would be quite a reasonable conclusion to, to draw. But because of the other things that go on that we've already discussed in some of the other episodes, like the perspective shift, like realigning your values and priorities, maybe doing things a little bit differently, prioritising your own well-being, you can actually make this next version of you match your values and give you the quality of life that you really want. Okay, so also in the last episode when we were talking about post-treatment adjustment, the next version and all the new normal, whatever you call it, happens at different stages for everybody and sometimes usually in that two-year period post the conclusion of treatment. For you, you had the big meltdown and took some time off to realign and then 
as you started to re-enter your life sort of in a bigger capacity, both returning to work, I assume this is when the new version of you began to come out. Emerge. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So so what's the new version or the next version of Charlotte versus the old version of Charlotte? Yeah. So I was quite conscious of this once I got through the early weeks of the meltdown because I thought it certainly gave me better insight into this experience. And I started to write down if I am to embrace this, you know, even if I've come to it reluctantly with a lot of resistance, but if I am now at that acknowledgement stage of adjustment and I am going to embrace this new version of me, let's figure out, is it one thing, two thing, 20 things? So I started to write it down. Um, and to be truthful, it's kind of a list that's still, it's still growing. It's it's the pace of the list is, is slowing down. I don't add that much to it every every week or every month, but I'm conscious that I'm still learning how to, to live this next version. So some of the things that are different are, um, and I touched on this in the last episode, is that I work a bit less. So I work 20% less, which is a whole day a week, which is not, not, not a small amount. I go to bed earlier. So I'm in bed and asleep by 9pm. I sleep in a bigger bed. That was a big thing. Now, it sounds weird, but for those women who are on hormone blockers or have gone into chemical menopause, you will appreciate the joy of hot flushes, not. I call them sauna bombs because I feel like hot flushes just does not do justice to the actual feeling that that you have with a hot flush. I mean, I feel like I could power a small village with the energy that my body produces in a, in a hot flush. And I get these, it's so disgusting, but women will relate to this. You know that bit of your neck where it's like your bones are. I think it's your clavicle. My sweat forms rock pools in my (laughs) clavicle. It's just so disgusting. And so one of the things that that we were mindful of, Rob and I were mindful of, particularly because as I was describing last episode, I had this chronic insomnia was we were looking for anything that was going to improve the sleep. And so And not drench him. (laughs) And not drench him. Oh absolutely. I mean I was it was like sleeping with a you know, with an active volcano in so many ways. Physically and emotionally. Um, Poor love. He probably wanted a second bed, not just a bigger bed. Um, So I had long thought that a good mattress and a bigger bed was just a bit, I don't know, I just, I don't know why I just thought, nah, that won't make a difference. Anyway, we bought a bigger bed. Oh my goodness. It definitely has helped my sleep. I mean, so did the sleeping medication, but just that, that not being close to another human when you are literally burning up and also not being worried about disturbing him. That was a big thing. I felt so guilty that I was, um, you know, disturbing his precious sleep as well. So yeah, a bigger bed was a big thing. I think as as I said last time, I, I, I say no more. I'm, I'm much better about um, boundary setting, as we call it, particularly to social stuff. I don't apologise anymore. I don't, I don't um, feel obligated to explain. I'm polite, but I just say no more. Things like I do do stuff that's aligned with my values more. So I do do more of this sort of stuff. I do more work with BCNA. I do more work with other cancer organisations. I feel that that's very important to me. And whereas, um, I mean, this work's always been important to me, but now it has a, a whole nother, I guess, level of meaning. And I am happy. I want to put energy into that. I make 
more time for myself. I exercise if I can. I mean, I sound like a saint. I'm so not a saint. Um, (laughs) But I try and exercise every day. Uh, What I I do do, and and this is something I do really strongly encourage other people to do, is with things like exercise, it, it, we can get sucked into sort of black and white thinking, which is kind of like I'll have this perfect idea that I'm going to do 15 minutes on the treadmill every day, and that's going to be amazing. And then when I don't do it once, I go, oh, like what's the what's the bother? I just won't do it ever again. And that's not obviously helpful. So when I start to feel you know seduced by the idea of sitting down and watching the TV rather than getting on the treadmill, I just say to myself, okay, let go of let go of how long you're going to be on it or how fast you're going to go or anything like that. Just put your sneakers on and get on it and just get on it, even if you're only going to be on it for a minute. And guess what happens? I get on it and generally I stay on it for a reasonable amount of time. But it's it's just having that kind of um, willingness to go, look, something's better than nothing. So even if I don't do, you know, that perfect idea of like what's going to be good for me, just doing something that's that's aligned with what I now view as so important to me. Would you, on the topic of perfect, would you have prior to your diagnosis considered yourself a perfectionist and has that changed? Yeah. Um, I mean, my children uh, will, they've said that they will put on my headstone that... Um, my catchphrase is, was, I should say, presentation is everything. So I definitely have a tendency towards perfectionism and I am still vulnerable to that, but I am much better at letting go of stuff. It'd be interesting if we did a survey of people in my life, how many people would agree with that statement, but I feel that's true. But it's like you were saying, I, it's not. it doesn't have to be a complete overhaul no, of, of no, you. It's, no, it's just no, it's not it's like, like the you next go chapter. From black to, yeah. That's right, yeah. exactly. You don't go from black to white. You just you just move a little bit on the continuum, and, and that's a, a good point to raise is that, is that with most things in life, it, it's rarely binary. It's rarely one or the other. It's just that you sit somewhere along a spectrum. And so if I was quite quite far along the end of perfectionism, I've probably come back a little bit, you know, just off the boil to a simmer. And that's good. That's good for me. It's good for the people around me. Um, it's less pressure. And and it, it gives me more peace and it gives me more time and energy to dedicate to other things. Yeah, definitely I am less perfectionistic, uh, not all of the time, but some of the time. You went from being full-time and and very full-time at work to pulling back. So that's the change that you've made in your professional life. And I Mm. think you admitted that uh, prior to the diagnosis, you always believed that everything would fall apart if you Mm. you stopped working as much Mm. as you did. And and Mm. thankfully it hasn't. The world's Mm. continued to turn. Mm. What What about at home? Has everything swung back into the roles that everyone had beforehand? No. One thing that was really interesting was that when I got when I was diagnosed, and this happened almost instantly without any discussion, uh, which is sort of odd, but I don't know, is that I stopped cooking and now I rarely cook. It's not because I, I don't know, I don't know if I don't want to cook, but I'm not cooking. What happened in the short term was, you know, as most people understand, we, we dove headlong into that treatment 
decision-making, scans, surgery, hoo-ha. And we had, at that stage, one adult child living at home and then our other, other daughter came home from overseas to be with us. So we had a couple of adult children and my husband is an amazing cook. And I had done the lion's share, not all of it, but I had done the lion's share of the cooking across our child-rearing years. And I just stopped. I kind of haven't started again. And no one starved. And no one starved. And the world didn't stop turning. And goodness me, the meals are still amazing. Possibly more amazing. Yeah, that's been a really fascinating thing. And we talk about, and it is a bit of an odd one because I would say I like cooking and I would say I'm not bad at cooking. Again, it's something that there was probably partly, at least partly about control. And I have just kind of gone, you know what, I don't need to do that. And now sometimes if I do cook, I mean, I might cook once a fortnight, maybe, not even. It's much more for pleasure rather than that sort of like there has to be food on the table for six people. So that's been an interesting thing. And unlikely to happen in most households. And unlikely to happen in most households, for sure. And this brings me to um, probably the the point of, of expectations, which is that we all have expectations of ourselves and our loved ones and our um, social networks similarly have expectations of us. And those expectations are built on years and years, usually decades of experience. For, for a lot of people, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, um, cancer comes along in your point when you've been... You, you, you've kind of got a reasonably well-established life. You know, you might have children and a, a, like a, a partner and a household and a, a job. And even if you haven't got all of those things, you've probably got some pretty well-established um, behaviours. And those behaviours set up expectations. They operate as standards and motivators and they can be really helpful in your pre-cancer life because they, they keep you going. They get you out of bed in, every morning. They, they keep you juggling all those balls and getting stuff done. And we educate other people about what to expect from us by our own behaviour. So if you've always been the person bringing the oranges to the netball on Saturday, guess what? Everyone's going to expect that you, as soon as you get finished with that pesky cancer treatment, you're going to similarly be right back with those oranges at the netball on Saturday. Because women are socialised around this this thing about being agreeable and kind of smoothing the, the rough edges of life and keeping the, the all the family balls in the air, we often don't sit back in those early days post-hospital post treatment. We don't sit back and kind of go, I don't know if I really do want to do the oranges at netball or I don't know if I've got the time or the energy to do the oranges at netball. So we try and do it and we might find that actually, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I've got time. I don't know if I've got the resources. I don't know if I've got the inclination. But the risk is that we do because of the expectations of others, because we've dragged those expectations and behaviours and motivators from our pre-cancer life into our post-cancer life. And sometimes, well, not even sometimes, almost always we find that they just don't fit. And that's when we come up short and feel quite frustrated and disappointed and like a failure because some of the stuff that we just used to do like breathing is now much harder and doesn't seem to fit and doesn't seem to feel the same. When we're talking about other people's expectations, Mm. what does that include? It can be well summed up in this thing I call the tyranny of competence, and that is that women are often incredibly competent, multitasking human beings, and it doesn't matter whether you've got a big career or a big family or just a big life, or just a life really. Um, We're very used to being the competent ones, and 
the problem with that is that the more competent we are, the more competent we expect ourselves to be and also the more competent other people expect us to be. And so that can lead to really quite high expectations of us to be back being that person we were pre-diagnosis as soon as possible. And in addition to that, we've often got quite a lot of pressure because by this time, we're often looking and sounding pretty much the same as we did. Hair's grown back, clothes are back on, I'm not wearing my tracksuit all the time, I'm not lying around on the couch, I'm actually up and about and doing stuff, driving people around, that sort of thing. And so people start to, because humans take in information through their eyes, so if you look mostly the same as you did before cancer, then the assumption is that you are mostly the same. And this is a really important thing. And I do often talk to my clients about this, about sometimes we have to be really explicit with language about saying, I know I might look, you know, like things are kind of okay. I might look good and who doesn't like to look good but how I look on the outside is really not representative of how I'm feeling on the inside and sometimes we actually have to say that stuff to to start to re-educate the people around us about the fact that things have changed and they aren't going to go back to the way they were. BCNA's online network is an active peer-to-peer support community where people affected by breast cancer can find information and connect with others who understand what you're going through. Read posts, write your own, ask a question, start a discussion and support others. The online network is available for you at every stage of your breast cancer journey, as well as your family, partner and friends. For more information, visit bcna.org.au forward slash online network. Maybe I need to go a step back before you start educating others. There must be, even like with your experience, that resistance. Absolutely. And before you acknowledge that you are possibly resisting, what are maybe some of the forms that resistance might uh, present? Often it's it's about trying to resume activities at the same speed, frequency, standard, uh, and whether it's in a work context or a parenting context or a, a caregiving context or study, um, it's about kind of just trying to go back and pick up as if none of this stuff happened. I mean, I, I've, I've had people plan parties, large parties, um, to happen literally the week after radiation treatment finished and then be frustrated and disappointed when they simply obviously found that they were just not up to it at all. It's worth pointing out that radiation tends to have a cumulative effect. It has a so, cumulative yeah, effect and it has yeah. a lag. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And and even once you're past the the treatment side effect of that, that the adjustment process and actually, you know, feeling like you can go back to what you were doing, if you like, from a standing start. Because I think that's the other thing is that through the course of treatment physically, we are so depleted. You know, each chemo, each radiation session, surgery, recovery, it's kind of like going down a staircase. Each one of those sessions, it it takes you one step lower. So then when you, you finish, it's not like you're back at ground zero. You're back at the bottom of a really deep, staircase and it's going to take you frankly many months 
to climb back up to something that looks and feels a bit like ground zero, except that the effort and the changes that have happened during that time means that whoever emerges at the top of that staircase isn't going to be the same person that went down there in the first place. And the look might be halfway up the staircase and the feel might be still at the bottom of the staircase. Correct. And and th- and that is so important, that whole look-feel clash. Um, because, of course, the other thing is, and we were talking about this with body image, is that you know, you're looking at yourself. I mean, it's not just other people looking at you, but you're looking at yourself and you're starting to go... Oh, you know, I'm actually not looking like I did with no hair and no eyebrows and I'm not looking like I did with, you know, my, my scars are healing and I've got the hang of what I'm wearing and, um, you know, I've got some of my colour back and I, and I can move. And so your brain's going, okay, I am kind of um, starting to look more like I did. The risk is that, the, that we then make an assumption that I'm going to end up very quickly exactly like I was. And, and this is the thing that you may well end up look I mean I look pretty like if we took looked at photos of me pre-diagnosis now apart from natural aging thank you very much I don't look that different with my clothes on I look incredibly different with my clothes off but with my clothes on I don't look that different now if we use that as the basis of judging kind of like how much the same everything is a lot of people would naturally assume that everything's kind of back to normal and it certainly isn't. So that whole thing about people taking in information through their eyes is so important. It makes me think of not a lot of people, but, but there are people who have had breast cancer who once all the treatment and everything's finished, they actually don't want to speak about it again. They almost mm. want to airbrush it, don't mm. bring it up, uh, I don't want to be reminded. Is that, apart from exhausting, I'd imagine, counterproductive? Yes, it is. It's a form of avoidance. And, you know, on the one hand, not surprising because if we're resistant to the idea that um, things have changed, you know, we we liked our life before, we'd really like to get back to our life before. Um, So we're holding on to that resistance. We, We want to avoid anything that makes us confront the reality. And so if we don't talk about it, we don't say the word, we don't, sometimes we don't share and, and that certainly is a thing where people have managed quite uh, – it's quite impressive the, the, the level to which people will go to keep that information secret. I certainly have, have seen people over the years who have kept um, their diagnosis or, or big parts of their treatment secret from family members or colleagues. And one of the things that people don't necessarily appreciate is that secret keeping, as you just said, is exhausting. You have to double and triple think everything, um, what you've said to whom and, and, and do that not just sort of once every so often, but often on a daily basis, particularly if it's people closest to you that you're keeping the secret from. So avoidance is, a, yeah, is often a very big part of this difficulty in adjusting. What you see in people who are adjusted, I don't know that I'd say it's a comfort that that feels like it's overstating it, but uh, it's a willingness to kind of go there and just be real about it and be like, yeah, I mean, that happened and things are different and I'm getting the hang of it and it's not necessarily a smooth ride, but I am reconciled to the fact that that chapter of my life is closed. So that's acknowledgement. That is acknowledgement. Which isn't easy, as you've pointed out. And what do you have to be happy about it? Do you have to embrace it? No, you don't. No, you don't. Um, and I think that's the other thing is that uh, 
that positive pressure thing of um, which I, I imagine a lot of people have experienced where the messages from people around us often with the best of intentions can be you know like you know you're so lucky we caught it early and um, you're so lucky that you know you got through the treatment you know relatively unscathed and I feel like saying and I don't usually but I feel like saying yeah I'm so lucky I don't have any breasts you know because it doesn't feel lucky it doesn't feel fortunate and it doesn't feel very authentic to sort of go yeah I'm so down with this like this is exactly the life I wanted so it's not about being happy with it but it is about acknowledging it as a reality and going yeah no this has happened and and even acknowledging the fact that you're not happy about it because I think that's one of the things that we see in resistance is that when you don't talk about what happened you're also not talking about how you feel about it you're not talking about the fact that it is actually eating you up inside and that that is causing you this distress whereas once you can start to talk about it and you can say do you know what I am not happy that I don't have any breasts on the other hand I'm quite happy that I'm alive so you know, it's a I'm, fair comparison. I'm wrestling with <laughs> I'm wrestling with that tension some days, but being able to, to talk about it is so much better than sitting with the distress and sitting alone in the distress because you are keeping secrets from other people. And that leads back to emotional isolation, which is a, a totally. very unfortunate place to be. Correct. Yeah. Okay, so you don't have to be happy about it. You need to acknowledge it. What are some of the other things that help to get you along that path of acknowledging. Yeah. The thing that when I was um, talking before about expectations and how important expectations are in this adjustment space is that, you know, we often as women, we go into this part of our life, this post-treatment adjustment phase with these really high expectations based on our previous experience of being ball jugglers, multitaskers, problem solvers, the butter that smooths the wheels of life. And then we find that we aren't able to do things the same way that we used to. And so I say to to my clients, the antidote for this is what I say, I I call it recalibrating expectations, fancy language for just changing your expectations of yourself. So easy to say, much harder to do. And so when people say, okay, well, how do I do that? I say, all right, well, let's use maths. Maths is cool. This is just very quick and dirty, but it works. If something used to take you three hours to do, doesn't matter what it is, doesn't matter if it's like a spreadsheet or cleaning the house or mowing the lawns or whatever, if it used to take you three hours to do, I encourage people to add on a half to a third. So you go, okay, it's going to take me four or four and a half hours to do the same job as it used to before. So, so what you've done there is you've shifted your expectations in terms of how long. If you had a standard to which you would do something, so, you know, as a perfectionist, if I was going to do something, it would have to be to 100%, yeah? It's about adjusting that standard down and going, okay, if I'm going to – this sounds lame, but this is a this is a real-life example of me. If I'm going to wash my windows, I'm not going for 100% anymore. I'm going for about 80%. I don't care if there's a few dog hairs there anymore. Before, I would have kept going and going and going until that those suckers were clean. Now I'm like, yeah, you know, they're a lot cleaner than they were before I started. That'll do. And the other thing I go is, is again, using maths is if you would do something for a certain amount of time that required kind of energy, let's just say standing on the side of a, of a netball game, like I was saying before, and maybe before you were able to do that for two hours, I, I encourage people to, again, use maths and divide by a third or a half. So then say, okay, well, I, I'll, I'll probably then allow myself the chance to stand on the sidelines for maybe an hour 
or maybe like an hour and a bit less than an hour, so about 40 minutes. So it's about just using something as, as clean and dry as maths to be able to recalibrate your expectations. It also then gives you something much more tangible and concrete to communicate to others. So instead of just sort of going like, oh, I don't know if I can come for the whole thing or I don't know if that's something that I can manage today, it's about going, well, okay, maybe I can do it, but I'm going to do a little bit differently. So I'm going to be there for this long or it's going to take me that much longer to do it. Or if I do it, like I'm just just giving you a heads up, might not be quite the way it used to be done, but it'll be done the new way. It's that sort of thing. The lesson, I guess, is that the the next version of you is coming regardless of your diagnosis and there's two ways to learn about it, the hard way or the proactive way. Yeah, I mean, I would love to think that it could be more proactive more often and I think that's where, you know, organisations like BCNA, the work that I'm doing with them, where we're probably going to try and work in that space a bit more to start getting this message out a bit sooner so that it doesn't come as this unpleasant shock at the end of hospital-based treatment. I think it would be great if people just had it on the horizon that there could be a bit of a dip coming and these are some things to start thinking about rather than getting to the dip and the dip being more like a bloody great cliff or also just feeling like, well, I wish someone had told me a bit sooner so that I could have really got my head in the game. It has some very real implications for things like returning to work or returning to study. I mean, if you know in advance, you can you can make plans. You can, um, and that has you know financial implications, um, childcare implications, all sorts of stuff. So it would help smooth that pathway as well. I think if we were talking about this stuff a bit sooner. Absolutely, and it would seem that the the next version of you might also lead to the realisation that some new ways to view intimacy might be in order. Mm. I think we'll talk about that in our next episode. And if this episode has helped you, go ahead and share it with someone else who might benefit. Subscribe to the podcast to ensure you never miss an episode. Rate and review it. And if you have a few minutes, there's a survey in the show notes. It helps BCNA create content that's relevant. Don't forget My Journey provides tailored information to give you all the information you need and nothing you don't. Sign up at myjourney.org.au. Connecting with others for support is also a great way to know you're not alone in this. Join BCNA's online network on the website. Coming up next time on the podcast, yep, we're going there. Intimacy after breast cancer. You get to a point with your intimacy partner where you've kind of got like a repertoire of intimacy and sexuality kind of moves, a bit like dance steps. We don't use the same moves every single time, but we draw on maybe a a set of moves, if you like. Those moves, that repertoire, has built up over time. They rely on a whole lot of things. Most importantly, they kind of rely on body parts. They rely on bits of you actually being there, being present. But they also rely on things like responses, sexual responses, physical responses, psychological responses, They rely on it not hurting, they rely on confidence, and they rely on familiarity. But once you've had cancer treatment, a lot of that stuff changes. If you try and apply those same dance steps and you haven't got those necessary components, it cannot work. 
Thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Kirshen. It's good to be upfront with you. Thanks for listening to Upfront About Breast Cancer, what you don't know until you do, with Dr Charlotte Todman, brought to you by the Breast Cancer Network Australia and proudly supported by JT Reid.